Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 10th of January. This is Peter Lewis and a warm welcome to Money Talk, the podcast that brings you the latest business news from across Asia. Thank you for making us one of the most listened to business and finance podcasts in Hong Kong, according to the pod statistics. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's headlines, the global economy is set to grow at its slowest pace since the pandemic, the World Bank has warned. It's forecast growth of just 2.4% in 2024, down from 2.6% last year, saying higher interest rates were a major factor. Global trade and investment will continue to be stifled by conflicts in Ukraine and the Middle East, it said. And the lender said global trade growth in 2024 was expected to be only half the average in the decade before the the pandemic. United Airlines and Alaska Airlines have found loose parts on some grounded 737 MAX aircraft, threatening to escalate Boeing's problems after an Alaska Airlines plane suffered a mid-air blowout on Friday. United Airlines said bolts in need of additional tightening have been found during inspections of Boeing 737 MAX 9s. Operating profit at Samsung Electronics fell by more than a third in the fourth quarter, despite a rebound in chip prices. Still, this was Samsung's smallest year-on-year profit fall in five quarters, signalling a price recovery after last year's supply glut. Analysts expect a semiconductor industry recovery to gather pace this year on growing demand for high-performance chips. The world's largest memory chip maker estimated on Tuesday that operating profits fell 35% to 2.1 billion US dollars in an advance estimate for its October to December quarter. The Hong Kong government said on Tuesday it would seek an explanation from Cathay Pacific over the flagship carrier's cancellation of dozens of flights due to a pilot shortage. We're very concerned, Hong Kong Chief Executive John Lee said. We'll be in contact with the people in the aviation industry, particularly Cathay Pacific, to ensure that their capacity is rebuilt as quickly as possible. Secretary for Transport and Logistics, Lam Sai Hung, expressed his grave concerns to the senior management of Cathay Pacific over the airline's recent cancellation of flights. He said the cancellations are affecting Hong Kong's status as an aviation hub. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio Ronfal, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Tim Huxley, Chairman of Mandarin Shipping. With a view from Japan is Dan Kerrigan, CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities Japan. As always, if you want more business news from the Asia-Pacific region, please take a look at my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks closed mainly lower on Tuesday, giving back some of the strong gains from the previous session. The S&P 500 cut earlier losses as the tech sector rebounded. It ended the session 0.2% lower at 4,757. At its lows of the day, the benchmark had lost 0.7%. The Nasdaq Composite recovered from a 0.9% slide and was up 0.1% at 14,858. The two indices advanced 1.4% and 2.1% respectively on Monday. The Dow traded 158 points lower, that's 0.4%, to 37,525, after being down as much as 310 points at one stage. Treasury yields were unchanged ahead of US inflation data later this week, with the two-year yield at 4.37% and the 10-year yielding 4.02%. 
The dollar index edged 0.2% higher to 102.53, holding close to levels not seen since mid-December as traders await the key US CPI release on Thursday. The yen saw mild weakness, with the US dollar yen rising 0.2% to 144.5 against the dollar. In Shanghai, the dollar rose 0.2% to 7.1684 renminbi against the dollar. Gold was unchanged at $2,030 an ounce. Oil prices rebounded Tuesday from a sharp sell-off in the previous session as traders tried to assess the impact of a potential broadening of the war between Israel and Hamas and an uncertain outlook for global economic growth. Brent crude rose 1.9% to $77.59 a barrel. The Securities and Exchange Commission said Tuesday afternoon that an announcement about Bitcoin ETFs on social media was incorrect. Initially, a tweet purportedly from the SEC announced it had approved rule change applications to allow the first Bitcoin ETFs in the United States. However, an SEC spokesman later said the SEC's Twitter account has been compromised and the unauthorised tweet regarding Bitcoin ETFs was not made by the SEC SEC or its staff. In volatile trading after the announcement, Bitcoin was down 3.6% at around $45,400, having been up 1.5% earlier in the day. Trading in Hong Kong was muted ahead of US and Chinese inflation data later this week. The Hang Seng Index was up 1.2% at the high of the day, but stocks reversed course in the afternoon session with the Hang Seng Index closing 34 points lower or 0.2% at a fresh 14-month low of 16,190. It was the sixth consecutive day of declines, marking the worst start to a new year since 2005, with cumulative declines so far this year of 5%. The tech index slipped 0.9% to trade at the lowest level since November 2022. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite rose 0.2% to 2,893, but still close to a 20-month low. And it looks like Hong Kong stocks are going to fall further this morning. Futures markets pointing to a loss of about 106 points for the Hang Seng at the open, uh, starting the day trading at around 16,084. You can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. We're in the middle of the week already. Let's welcome our Wednesday morning guests. We have with us Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Morning to you, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. Happy New Year. Uh, thank you. Happy New Year to you too. And also with us is Tim Huxley, Chairman of Mandarin Shipping. Happy New Year to you, Tim, as well. Same to you, Peter. Good to be with you again. Yes, very nice to speak to you again. When we last spoke, Tim, a couple of months ago, I remember we were talking about the shipping sector. We were talking about um, Maersk at the time, um, which was uh, looking like it was in a bit of trouble, wasn't it? It was laying off workers, about a tenth of its workforce. It was reporting sharp falls in revenues and profits. Uh, there was overcapacity, um, freight uh, rates um were coming down. That all seems to have gone into reverse recently. You've said many times this is a volatile industry, but this seems to be going from one extreme to another at the moment. Well, Peter, yes, it it is. But we've got to keep everything in perspective and everything in context. I mean, what's driving uh, the attention the shipping market is getting, uh, particularly from the media, uh, is obviously the situation in the Middle East and the Red Sea uh, with these uh, attacks that have been taking place on shipping. And indeed, uh, probably one of the 
uh, most notable attacks was actually on a Merced ship. These are the Houthi rebels who have said they will attack uh, shipping going through the Red Sea, which means it's the shipping that's going up to the uh, to the Suez Canal, that major artery that uh, handles 12% of all seaborne trade and about 30% of containerized trade. So it's a critically important uh, seaway. But what has happened is that with some of the attacks, there have been about 24 attacks since the end of November on uh, merchant shipping. Uh, fortunately, um, without any uh, notable loss of life or, uh, or or damage to ships. But what it has prompted is a lot of the major container lines are now rerouting their ships round uh, round the Cape. So they're going around Africa, which adds about 15 days to the voyage. And obviously, that's an increased cost, and it's increased time. And so that takes out capacity from the market. And what that does, you sh- like any market, you reduce capacity, and you uh, end up with a bit of a shortage. And so container rates uh, for shipping a container from Asia to Europe, uh, they have gone up by about hundred over 170%. Mm. Uh, they've gone from uh, sort of below, well below $3,000 to over $4,000 per container. So that's a big jump. And so people say, oh, this is going to be terrible. This is going to fuel inflation. There are going to be delays. Uh, You know, some of the big uh, shippers like IKEA were saying, uh, you know, we will have delays. So could be a bit of frustration for flat pack furniture enthusiasts. Uh, But really, the most you've got to look at this in context. Yes, the rates have gone up. But this is nothing compared to where we were in COVID. Uh, when rates were about 20,000 per container, uh, where you had every link in the supply chain was stretched to the limits. You didn't have Mm. crane drivers, you didn't have truck drivers. Ships were held in quarantine. This is a a sort of, the canal is not closed. Uh, And, you know, let's just look at it in history. Uh, Suez Canal, it's always been this major artery. But you've got to remember back in in the late 60s, the Suez Canal was actually closed for seven years. Uh, we've had a small portion of ships now going round uh, the Cape, uh, and still plenty are going through. We don't expect this situation to be long term. Uh, I mean, Deutsche Bank came out yesterday and they said it would be a matter of weeks. I mean, that's a big, difficult thing to call, really, of making a judgment on uh, warfare in the Middle East and geopolitics. But mm-hmm. generally, People do think that this will be resolved. And of course, then you've got to also look at this in the context of the fact that you've got a massive oversupply of ships. Now, you've got 20% of the world fleet of container ships sitting in shipyards being built at the moment. And they're all going to be delivered over the next year or so. So that's not, you know, this is going to, this, this uh, uh, hiccup in the Red Sea and Suez, what it's really going to do, it's, it's, it's going to help absorb some of this excess capacity and all it's going to do is delaying the real impact of when that excess capacity all of which was built on the extraordinary profits that container shipping companies made during covid uh and so they they then ordered and you know we've now got too many ships so it might prompt some of the older ships to be recycled uh when that surplus comes in but at the moment yes uh, rates have gone up, and so anybody who's having to move goods, uh, which would possibly be uh, sent through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, if they're doing it on a spot market basis and it's not under a long-term contract, then they will be paying more. 
Mm. And, and you know, this is having an impact, of course, not just on freight rates, container rates, it's having an impact on oil prices as well. But oil prices are really very volatile at the moment because there seems to be a lot of conflicting forces at the moment affecting that. We have, on the one hand, these disruptions um, in the Middle East, the Houthi attacks. But at the same time, um, there is, um, you know, there are countries like the United States, Brazil, which are ramping up production uh, to record levels. Yes, you've got clearly the Saudis who just on Monday actually cut its cut the official selling price of February's exports. So they cut the prices of February's exports for for the, the selling of oil, obviously. Then, of course, you've got this what I call the U.S. wheelchair race, the presidential race, where the voters won't take kindly to um a hike in oil and prices at the pump so you'll probably find more crude oil production but if i may just ask tim one final thing before we veer away from the the shipping a little bit tim the china europe railway express has received some mention in the press i wonder whether that's a band-aid to this hiccup um that you currently see in the supply constraints yeah and i mean it's I mean, the railway, yes, I mean, an amazing feat of engineering to get that built. But really, there is no real replacement for carrying goods yes. by sea. I mean, you've got to remember, I mean, a train, uh, I mean, yes, it take several thousand containers. I mean, one of these ships is taking about 20,000. So to replace that capacity with uh, putting it on railways... It's it's really there just isn't the scale. drop on a hot stone yeah yeah, yeah. It's, it's it's not really going to be enough useful thank you. Tim, if we were to take out this current disruption that's going on in the, the Suez Canal, and also I suppose we shouldn't forget there's also some disruptions in Panama Canal as well, aren't there, because of climate yes. issues. But if we were to yes. sort of take that out, where would we be right now in the global shipping cycle? Is there still overcapacity there? Uh, in container shipping, yes, there certainly is, uh, and uh, and that's why the rates have come way down. Uh, what was it? I mean, the key indicator of the health of container freight rates is where we, we it's called the Howe Robinson Container Index, uh, and last Friday that jumped up two point two percent to nine hundred and thirty two, but its peak was in October twenty two when it was just below six thousand. Mm. So that's what. That's the drop you're trying to make up. Uh, I mean, I don't actually see it going back to 6,000 unless, God God forbid, we have another pandemic or, so, or something like that. Uh, I mean, certainly it's going to take a, a very long time to absorb all of this excess capacity that we've now got. And when you've got these new ships coming in, it's always the great shipping perfect storm. And you've got lots of new capacity coming on just when you've got... Uh, Declining demand. I mean, seaborne trade. We're only predicting growth of one percent this year. So, you know, we're in for a pretty long haul of quite a tough market. But then we, at the same time, we hear stories and reports about, uh, for example, that China can't get enough container ships to ship uh, their electric vehicles overseas to, to Europe um, and, and elsewhere. So there seem to be sort of conflicting reports, don't there, about where exactly we are in the cycle. Well, again, uh, Peter, it's always the problem, isn't it? When you've got sort of 800 words to describe a, situ a complex economic situation, <laughs> you're not going to get it all in in that point. With 
EV sales. And there was this piece in, in one of the financial papers about the fact that there aren't there isn't enough shipping capacity to move all the electric vehicles that are being made now that China has stepped up to be the biggest manufacturer in the world. Now in and certainly Chinese car exports are been phenomenal and it's all led by evs and uh, last year they were about 4.4 million uh and so they're they're along they're now exceeding japan's exports and mm. uh, i mean certainly if you're in hong kong and you've looked out over uh the straits coming into hong kong you'll sometimes see these incredibly ugly ships that come in they look like a floating block of flats i've seen now, some of them car- yeah, in Chinyi, yeah. yeah. They're, they're car carriers, and they will carry about 9,000 cars. And they're, they're basically just a big floating garage. I mean, you drive all these cars up a ramp, put them on there, and then the ship sails. But it's interesting how in China, about up to 40% of the, their car exports are actually done by container ship, as opposed to these specialist car carriers. And those articles that are appearing, we're all talking about there aren't enough of these specialist ships. Now, then, there are enough being built. I mean, people like BYD have now gone and ordered their own ships rather than using the ones that by the dedicated car carrier companies, uh, which are mainly based in Norway. So at the moment, the surplus capacity you've got in container shipping uh, is that will help the car carrier market because they can put cars in containers and ship them. Mm. Uh, and then in the coming couple of years, in the next two years, you've got a very significant number of these car carriers being delivered. And we'll probably then go into surplus on that. So this is a, it's not really a big story uh, of, of the lack of shipping capacity affecting uh, EV manufacturers. Uh, what it is, is that, yes, it's more cargo. So it is helping uh, alleviate some of, some of the difficulties that you're seeing in the container shipping market. Mm. So, so Enzio, when we hear about these stories about how much China is dominating the EV market and, you know, is almost flooding the world now with, with, with exports, it's sort of that also rather sort of negates some of the stories we're hearing about the struggling um, Chinese economy. Or is it more that there are certain sectors of the Chinese economy that the government wants to uh, promote and invest in, like batteries, yeah. like solar panels, like EVs that are doing well, um, but others that are doing really badly at the moment? Yes, well, I think I would agree with the latter. I think that what's happened in China uh, goes way beyond the rather simplistic notion if they just fiscally and monetarily stimulate. I think what's happened there is that something has come into play called party state capitalism. And that basically means that the party, not the government, not the state, but the party very much is at the helm of controlling which private enterprises are to do what and when, um, depending on what the party, not the, not the government, but what the party wants. And mm-hmm. I think that that's something that listeners need to be very aware of, because when economists come in there and say, well, if we just have a little bit of cut in the rate in, in the reserve requirement that we'll be talking about in a moment, um, these are ineffectual measures. They're a bit like giving an alcoholic a bunch of aspirin to take in the hopes that that will cure the headache. It just won't do. The, the problem is, though, that as the government chooses these particular manufacturing yes. sectors that it wants to invest in, uh, it's yeah. going to trigger uh, further trade tensions, isn't it? Because there's um, the, the, the domestic economy can't absorb um, all of this spare capacity. So it's going to have to be exported abroad. Um, and the US and the EU are certainly not going to be very welcoming to that. 
Yes, I think that this whole, uh, and that's, of course, it's the confluence of events that you've got with that and also then, of course, with this whole decoupling mess going on. So it's, but I think there will be, my own having covered US-Japan, US-China for a few years, on played a little bit in that pen on the relations side, I do sadly foresee a lot of a very strong rise in trade tensions, China-US, because the electorate in America will be whipped up to hate all of those communist Chinese. Again, that's what they do over in the States to appeal to this to the mass. And that isn't going to make things easier. And of course, all politics are domestic in China, too. Mm. So in, in this party state capitalism, as you describe it, is there any room mm. for the markets in that and market forces dictating where investment ought to go? As far as I've understood this, and there was an excellent study put out just last year. No, there isn't. It's It, it seems as if very much as if the, 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 the party will tell the, the sectors which it favours what to do and they will have very strong influence, even just with a 1% voting right. They call those um, special financial shares or something of the sort. So I think that you'll find increase a very dirigiste economy coming back into play. And I don't know how then employment can be created sufficiently to employ these this, this, this vast pool of unemployed labor. I just don't know how that's going to work if the market isn't allowed what it needs to do. So, so how is it that we've ended up going from what was a form of sort of state capitalism, there was a form of market capitalism, to this mm. uh, party state capitalism? How, why, why have we made this transition? Is there some economic reason that Beijing believes is driving it? Or is it really just a purely a desire to have complete control over every aspect of the economy and society and, and everything else to do with China? I think more of the latter myself. Um, by the late 2000s, China did face a critical juncture in its reform process as the global financial crisis called into question the sustainability of its export-led model. But that doesn't mean that then the, the party itself has to take control of private enterprise. So I think it very much is Xi's desire to really have the party be more and more in control of China itself. So it's not, again, it's to differentiate between the the government and the party itself. I think that's his new quest. Mm. Tim, when, when you hear this, do you do you worry about the direction that the Chinese economy is going in, one where there doesn't seem or doesn't appear to be any room for market forces anymore? Uh, of course, all of us. I mean, for what, since the 80s, we've always watched everything that's going on in China. Uh, and it has been the driving force of the global economy in so many different areas. And without China, we certainly wouldn't have had uh, all of the developments we had in the shipping industry over over the last couple of decades. Uh, just sheer scale of China means it is always going to be of huge influence. But you can't just sort of take one aspect of what's going on in China uh, and sort of pin your hopes for the world economy on that. I mean, as NGO has said, I mean, we've got all of this drama going on in the States and the rhetoric that's going to come out of there over the next few months. Yes. And that's going to be pretty ugly. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but overall, you know, you just go back. I mean, let's just look at what we were talking about earlier about, say, EV production. I mean, are we going to be producing too many electric cars? Is China going to flood the market? Is that market going to be destroyed? That could happen. I mean, we've got, you know, slowing, slowing demand, um, 
it's uh, and, and the questions about electric vehicles still remain i mean i'll put my cards on the table you know i'm uh, i'm not a great fan of them personally uh, but uh, you know and why and why is that uh well, I have a sort of sideline on the side as a as a motor racing correspondent, oh. so I'm a petrol engine person. They have electric vehicle racing as well, though. Well, yeah, yeah, but uh, but also I think it's really important uh, to we've got they're not they're not the panacea to all of the uh, uh, emissions ills, and mm-hmm. uh, you know there there are issues about how green they are about in the manufacturing and uh, and, and also you know i mean peter you're in the uk i mean if you're trying to drive around an electric vehicle there i mean good luck on finding a charging point mm. um so i think that there's, there's still a lot of the it, it's, it's a great way forward and uh evs will play a role in decarbonization but uh, going back to the sort of chinese economy it's uh yeah, you've got to get these people to work somehow. And I do yeah. I have every sympathy for the Chinese government in trying to uh, get this employment issue and everything back on track. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> what we've got to do is we've got to stimulate demand. Mm, but they haven't created any new jobs, have they? For all, all of this, it's not not creating new jobs because, um, you know, for all this social engineering, uh, the the problem is there's just mm. the economy is just not growing enough uh, to put these people into work, and there's not enough domestic demand and consumer confidence to keep the the economy motoring. Without a doubt, and uh, I, I, how you actually get people out there spending again. I mean, you know, obviously, and it's all then interlinked. So people are worried about property market in China. And so they're holding back about spending. They don't want to spend money because they're now, uh, their children are not going out to work because there aren't the jobs. There's a load of, a load of problems there uh, that are, Mm. are going to take a very long time to solve. That's for sure. I mean, Antia, where does this uh, report from the EU fit in about uh, last year was the hottest year on record um, by a considerable margin? Um, and, and the EU science is warning that um, actually we're going to just blow through all the climate uh, targets uh, very quickly if we, if we carry on like this. Does this put more urgency into things like electric vehicles and sustainability and environmental issues? I think so, but it's also really consumer behavior. I mean, we were in Thailand and Phuket just over the weekend uh, for the past couple of weeks, and it was appalling to see just this wastage of plastic that suffocates everything. So Mm -hmm. I don't think it's just these laudable effects that Tim also agrees with about having electric vehicles. I mean, they may not be, and as Tim says, they're not a panacea either. I mean, you, 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 you junk up the environment by producing these things, especially the batteries, I believe. Um, But I think that you're going to find um, it's also the consumer behavior that needs to change a great deal and the weaning away from plastic, this this dreadful material, and that is just not going to happen that quickly. But I would also have to say that we do have global climate cycles. For instance, the, I'm not sure if you're aware, I wasn't, that the, that the Sahara Desert used to be a jungle. 
And I find that rather interesting mm -hmm. um, that, and that was of course way before plastic bags were even thought of. So it's not just the bad humanoid running around dumping his plastic everywhere, her plastic everywhere, but of course we have to do our bit to try and, uh, to try and alleviate these cycles. So what do you make of this um, World Bank report that uh, was issued yesterday? They're saying the global economy is set for the weakest growth now since the pandemic. It's forecast oh, cool. growth of just 2.4% next year, down yeah. from 2.6%. Uh, and it talked about trade as well. It said global trade and investment mm -hmm. is going to continue to be stifled by the conflicts in Ukraine. Uh, and the Middle East. Global trade growth, only about half the average now of the decade before the pandemic. Now, I know, NGO, you're not a big fan of these multilateral institutions and their, uh, like the IMF and the World Bank and their, no. and their economic reports. But nevertheless, is there anything in there that uh, uh, makes you think that somehow uh, we're, 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 there's a wasted opportunity here? Well, I'm not seeing it in the report itself. They tell the time by looking at somebody else's watch. And I don't I just don't see where the value added is. But that aside, um, no, they, 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 they these multilaterals, it's all consensus economics time. And so I don't think that they really add a great deal of value to solving the problem of the wasted opportunity. I, I just don't see that happening. I myself think that there should be a massive push in middle-class education, especially vocational training. I think that would alleviate many, many issues of uh, not everybody needs a university degree. And I think that's at least one of my sort of clarion calls. And also we need investments, don't we? If uh, if the global economy is going to grow, uh, we need particularly yes. developing countries uh, to be able to invest more. But that's, of course, very difficult with interest rates going up. Well, China is to the developing world what the U.S. is to the developed world. It, it, it calls the shots, basically. And so mm. where China goes, I think the it's, it's safe to say it's a fair bet that that's where the developing world goes. And my outlook on China is particularly bearish, really, for some years now because of this policy, this state, this party state capitalism. So I think it's these you're going to find a lot of polarization yet again globally in, in in tension. So it's more than just this rather trite comment, well, interest rates have risen, so that, that's bad for everybody. It's more to it than that. Mm. And and Tim, this report from the World Bank is also uh, talked about some of the things we were talking about a little bit earlier on, about disruptions of key shipping routes, uh, increasing the likelihood of inflationary bottlenecks. Uh, Anthony Blinken, who's in the Middle East, said these attacks have disrupted or diverted about 20% uh, of global shipping and the World Bank warning that this is all going to um, involve cost and time for moving things like food, medicine, fuel and, and so on. Uh, so it all seems to circle back on itself, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. But uh, as I say, I think that, I mean, I, I tend to agree with Enzia about uh, these various reports that come out and uh, and it's very mm. easy just to grab from them certain sound bites that uh, generally look pretty horrendous. I mean, most industries, and shipping being a particular example of this, uh, they do actually have uh, an ability to to cure their assorted problems. And I mean, and, you know, you look at, I think COVID was a classic lesson for us to realise how industries can actually overcome specific problems that do arrive. And we had, yes, we had a massive 
population during that time because we had a chronic shortage of of of, of shipping capacity. So, but yeah, you know, we overcame that, and mm. uh, and as is always the case, especially in industry like shipping, we went completely the opposite way. The pendulum completely swung, and we went from massive shortage to chronic overcapacity, uh, and and that is the way of the world. And uh, I think sound bites from uh, uh, various politicians and analysts and everything you know just get down and look at the real reality of what each and every one of our lives is all about and that includes you know how we're all living our lives about uh wastage and our own consumption of plastic just look at what you're doing yourself and i think that we uh we are we are going to come through this this is this is a this has been a yeah. pretty rocky start to the year uh but i i actually am pretty I, i'm pretty upbeat about the year as a whole to be honest and I mean, that was um, the, the view at the beginning of last year, wasn't it? That people were pretty upbeat about certainly the Chinese economy, less upbeat about the US economy and things worked mm-hmm. out um, in, in reverse. Do you think maybe that people are being too gloomy um, about the Chinese economy for, for this year? I think certain elements of it, you've got uh, every reason to be concerned. <clears throat> but I mean, you know, like last year we were worried about, and again, this takes into account all of the things we've been talking about. I mean, last year, one of the things that held up uh, quite a few uh, economies around the world uh, was China's demand for raw materials. I mean, China Mm. was actually importing more coal and iron ore and everything like that. Mm. Uh, So, yeah, this is not just a very... This is not straightforward by any means about how it will be. And I think that China... China, certainly, I think it's raw materials this year. That's probably quite a strong performer. Uh, as we've seen, its exports on areas like EVs, that will be a, a very strong performer. But then it will lead to overcapacity. And uh, so that market will pass. Mm-hmm. I mean, NCO, one, there was something in this report that caught my eye that maybe we should be concerned mm, about. And it good. did highlight the difference uh, in the recoveries in developed economies as opposed to um, uh, developing economies. So at the end of um this year, most uh, people in developed economies are going to have a higher per capita income than they did before COVID. But if you're in an emergency economy, your income's about 75% of the pre-COVID level um, and maybe 66% in the mm. in the poorest countries, according to this report. That, that again, is a, a huge lost opportunity, isn't it? I think there's also a very dangerous one because of this of this polarisation, which is, 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 as we all know, I'm not the World Bank, as we all know, is a a very global sort of pervasive theme. And again, I get back to one, it's not a panacea, but one area is really middle class education, vocational training. I really think that that would that would at least give people some hope because it's not really about spending. It's about job creation and thus job income security. That's what this whole thing is about. This whole economic scheme is creating jobs to create income security. And then once you have that, people will go out and spend. But that, I'm, my friend Tim, I'm not going to quite agree with. I, I am a little bit less optimistic this year because I think the monetary cycle globally still has its 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 way to go. USM2 only began contracting a few months ago, and that will continue for some time. So despite the this cut in the interest rate talk that the markets have been chattering about for so long, it's the real thing is to focus on the contraction of M2, which I think will continue. So that means inflation is going to come down. 
I think inflation will come down, but I think that the Fed will remain super cautious, having made so many mistakes on the way up. It will mm. have to then at least temper its mistakes on the way down. Yeah, I mean, it sees the, the the bigger risk to the upside, doesn't it? That if it's wrong on the upside and inflation spikes, yeah. it's going to get into far more trouble back. than if it's wrong on the downside. Yeah, especially with tight labour markets. But again, the tight labour markets are a supply side issue in my mind that many people just don't want to work anymore. They only want to work a three-day week. They only want to work two days. They want to work mainly from home these days, so productivity goes down the drain. Is, is that true, all though? Of these things, is, is that the case, uh, that if you do work from home, that necessarily productivity goes down the drain? You're not as productive working from home as you are, say, in, in the office? Well, as, as an analyst myself, I think that my productivity probably goes up because I've got the peace and quiet and no ringing telephones at home to get on with it like you do with, with your work. But if you're part of a team effort like a sales desk at a brokerage, I think you'd need that interaction with the other brokers, with the other traders, your old stomping ground, to then be productive. So I think that it depends, again, on the industries, as Tim would say. Tim, where are you the most productive, apart from, of course, your local bar? Oh, as you can see, I am I am in the office. I'm in a suit, uh, seven thirty in the morning, uh, and uh, I, I I am definitely an office person. Uh, I'm sorry, you know, home is home, uh, and you know I am more productive in the office. But it's not necessarily being in the office. It's actually being connected to people and talking mm. to people. Yes, I mean, you know, I was out at an event last night, and that was five hundred people there till about ten o'clock at night. That was really productive. But I think that uh, it's, uh, as Enzi alluded to there, it is actually the, this environment that you're in. And there are times when you do need peace and quiet. Uh, but for me, and I think in, in Hong Kong in particular, mm, yes. it, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work having everybody work from home or working in small flats and uh, with all the family around there. Uh, and yeah, and I, I certainly, talking to people who did long lockdowns in Europe of working from home, they said it wasn't ah. as productive. You've got to talk to Colin. You need those water cooler moments. Okay. Well, look, thank you both very much for a great discussion this morning. Some very interesting thank you. Uh, thoughts there. You heard Tim Huxley, who is chairman of Mandarin Shipping, and Enzio von Fahl, who is capital preservation specialist at Financial Shield. <laughs> I'm joined now by Dan Kerrigan, who is the CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities over in Japan. Morning, Dan, and Happy New Year. Peter, Happy New Year, mate. Thank Good you very year. much. Um, Japan's Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, he seems to be in a bit of trouble, doesn't he, with this uh, escalating sort of slush fund um, scandal. Explain a little bit for our listeners who may not be too familiar uh, with what's happening there. What, what exactly is going on? What's this scandal all about? Well, it's um, Cynic's definition of history is always uh, one damn thing after another, right? So just when we thought Japan was going to get back on the global stage as a, a geopolitical player where they should be, we're getting distracted by this latest bribery, well, not bribery scandal. What, what happened was the money in politics is nothing new in Japan. And it was uh, just a bog standard fundraising event. And uh, several of the leaders of the Abe faction within the LDP failed to report uh, some donations uh, to the level where that they actually received. It's about $4 million, it looks like. But this is going to be something that's going to distract the Kishida regime from here. 
So just what's interesting, this is really nothing new. You go back to the 1970s, there was uh, the Lockheed bribery scandal, which took down the Tanaka fact, uh, prime minister. And um, we also had a case in the 1980s of uh, uh, the head of Recruit handing out pre-IPO shares to politicians and that damaged the Takeshita uh, prime uh, ministry. And what's just a little bit annoying about this is it, it was uh, just a routine fundraising event. And um, I guess it, it, the Americans call it a rookie mistake. I think you would call it a schoolboy error that they just didn't report the, the funds that they'd received. So this might be a sign that the, the Abe faction really thinks they might be about the law. They just kind of did this with impunity, not thinking that they were going to be uh, cited for this. So it's just a shame because – as we know, Japan has made a, a large case for doubling their defense spending from 1% of GDP to 2%. We had, for the first time in about 10 years, a shipment of Patriot air defense missiles to the U.S. So the, Japan's sort of pacifist st uh, stance on things is actually changing a, a little bit. And it, it seems as though Japan's uniting with South Korea and some of the other Asian countries in, uh, behind a common enemy in, in China. And um, the defense spending is something that, that we were watching very carefully. But I think in terms of uh, really continuing that agenda, this scandal could be just a distraction. Mm. Could it derail altogether uh, the, those I, plans? I, yeah, it, it, it's going to certainly uh, delay them by, by the looks of it. But I don't think this is going to be a mortal blow uh, to uh, the, the prime minister here, to Ikeda. And um, he, we're not going to see uh, the LDP have another internal uh, election for uh, the prime ministership until September of this year. And there's not going to be a general election until 2025. So I think it's going to slow down the agenda. It's, it's unfortunately going to cause a little bit of stasis, which again, take it that may or may not be a bad thing, but it's just an, an unneeded distraction right now. And again, it's a self-inflicted wound. So you don't think uh, the prime minister is going to have to resign or will be forced out uh, as, as a result? Uh, of I don't this? think so. Well, if any, if anything, because it just doesn't seem as though there's uh, anybody in the wings waiting to take over at this stage. Mm. And um, does it have an impact on the thinking of the Bank of Japan in terms of, you know, when they exit uh, their negative interest rate policy and, and their yield curve control? Is it in the back of their minds as well? The bank always likes to say that they're independent. I don't think they're affected by poll numbers or politics at this point. I do think that they're going to be more sensitive to what we've seen with the, this earthquake in, uh, in Ishikawa. I think it would be a, a little bit uh untoward for them to raise rates in the light of what's a, a reconstruction package. That's probably the the priority in terms of um, the fiscal spending right now, again, separate from what the BOJ is looking for. But that would just be another headwind to the, the effects that we're seeing of that earthquake. So I do not think that the Bank of Japan is going to raise rates. And certainly the activity that we've seen in the FX market is indicating that the spread between U.S. Treasuries and JGBs is going to remain where it is. We're back to you know the 144, 145 uh, level that we had seen prior. Mm. I, so I, it looks as though there's that status quo there, it looks like. And we had some data yesterday for the, the Bank of Japan to focus on Tokyo's core inflation rate. It did slow, didn't it, down to 2.1%. Uh, in December, mm -hmm. it was 2.3% in November. Still above the Bank of Japan's target, though, isn't it, for now the 19th it consecutive is. month. But nevertheless, mm -hmm. um, is, is there a downward trend again in, in inflation? I mean, we'll see the national... I wouldn't say downward, no. I, I think the genie's out of the bottle, but I think we're going we're gonna to stabilize around these levels here. But no, we're not going back to uh, deflation. 
from what we've seen. Okay. Well, some good news. Despite all the problems for Fumio Kishida, it's not derailing the rally, is it? In uh, in the stock market, the Nikkei 225 uh, closed at 33.763. That's the highest level since March 1990. We remember that, don't we? We do indeed. So, yeah, I don't. I think that the markets are setting up fine. Um, I, I think we've seen uh, some interesting things happening that are endogenous. I think uh, some of the, the takeover activity, some of the TOB wars that are happening are actually among Japanese firms. It's not like you have the the outsiders coming in and and uh, trying to do takeovers. I think there's a lot of activity happening domestically, which is the thing I'm most excited about. And I've got to ask you, can they uh, can the Nikkei two two five regain its its all time high? Three eight nine one five. I remember yeah. it well. I think we're going to be there. We will get. Well, look, I'm not giving advice. We don't give advice here, but uh, things are setting up for the that to, to happen in, in the coming years. Okay. okay. And so if just, 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 just keep in mind after the, the crash of 1929 in the U S the, the Dow Jones didn't recover its uh, 1929 average until the early 1950s. Granted it was a, diff- a little bit of a different index, but it's been a long time coming. Yeah. And I suppose that, uh, you know, similar, similar period of time really, isn't it for, uh, for, for Japan yes. uh, um, as well. Um, it was the best performing market in um, in Asia last year, but the signs seem to be pretty good, don't it? For for this year, it's picked up uh, pretty well where it left off. Whereas other global markets really have started this year sort of struggling. Mm. So no, it's an interesting setup in the markets here, and I, I think a lot of it, as I said, is coming from uh, capital improvements, capital efficiency gains, and uh, a few other things. We're going to see an intergenerational. Uh, change in wealth here demographically in the in the coming decades. So things are setting up quite well in Japan. And what does this all mean for the yen? Uh, I I would have to think the, the yen is going to have to stay competitive. Um, some people are thinking it's going to significantly weaken. I, I really think that some of the, the trading partners in the region here would uh, cry about that. But uh, I, I don't see it coming back again. These things are in cycles, but it seems as though we, we've had a, a range over the last several decades that we've, uh, we're looking to break out of here. So this could be the new range, the middle of the new range. I don't, I don't see the yen really strengthening again. If there's anything of the Abe's three arrows, it seems as though monetary policy is going to remain loose. Mm. And um, the Tokyo Stock Exchange, it starts this month, I think, it's its name and shame campaign, doesn't it, to try and uh, improve uh, shareholder value, um, boost those companies that are trading below uh, sort of book value. I, 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 how mm-hmm. are companies reacting to that? Some of them are getting on board and some of them are going to ignore it. But again, it all comes down to execution because we've seen in the past some grandiose plans with the deadline. And then as the deadline approaches, they kick the can down the road. I, I don't think that's going to happen this time. I, I do believe that the people who do run the exchange are going to follow through on this campaign. So that's exciting. And uh, we're going to see people get on board or some people maybe just take their companies private. They, they, there is going to be that uh, debate here. Some people are going to say it's not worth it being a listed company. So we will see some take privates here, I think, in the coming years. Mm. And there's going to be more um, M&A activity as well as a result of all of this, presumably. Domestically, yes. Domestic and overseas. But I, I'm actually most excited about the domestic activity. 
Mm, okay. Is Japan benefiting, benefiting also from the fact that it's it's not China? There seems to be this new asset class now of Asia ex China, just like we used to have Asia ex Japan, uh, sort of thirty years ago. Appear now, suddenly clients are looking for Asia um, ex China. Are, are you seeing Japan benefiting from that sort of trend? I, I think we did see a bit of short term benefit from that as everybody was heading out of the exits of China, but I think Japan. Ultimately, is going to have to be evaluated on its own merits, and I think there's enough of a good story here where you can just look at this on a standalone basis. Mm. I think it's a left-handed compliment to say it's not China. Well, again, it's of course it's never going to be China. The, the demographics, the, the population, the way businesses are set up—it's a completely different sort of uh, animal at this point. So I, I don't really put a lot of of. Uh, worth into the argument that it's it's going to benefit be benefiting over the longer term because it's not china mm. i think there's enough of a good story here even though people in japan don't want to compare it to china there's many people in china comparing their situation right now to japan and and, and the situation it got itself into at the beginning of the, the 1990s with with deflation and so on yeah there's some parallels with the demographics and with the the indebtedness um, but again, the difference is Japan didn't have military aspirations in the region, and um, it's it, it is say what you will. The politics are a bit different. You can you can make your own argument, but uh, it's not a dictatorship. So there's there's different there are more differences I think than similarities. Okay, well, it's going to be an interesting year for Japan. Look forward to talking to you more about Japan during the course of 2024. Dan, thank you very much. Thank you, Peter. All the best. Thank you. That's Dan Kerrigan, who is the CEO of Interactive Brokers Securities in Japan. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news to go with this show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guests will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Hong Kong-based macro strategist Patrick Bennett. And with a view from Taiwan, it's Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at Safepro Group. Please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk.